This is David Marler, UFO researcher, and you're listening to That UFO Podcast. For a while now, you might have heard me tell you the podcast is sponsored by Zencaster, and it still is. I've been working with Zencaster as my audio host for quite some time now. The podcasting industry has also grown at an exponential rate over the past two years and it's expected to grow to more than a $150 billion industry by 2030. I've said before, I'm a huge fan of podcasting and if you're a fan of podcasting or investing, maybe both, Zencaster has now announced its round of crowdfunding. You can invest as little as $100 and join a community of other investors who seek to help Zencaster and independent podcasters succeed. If you're interested in investing in Zencaster, go to wefunder.com forward slash Zencaster or click the link in my episode description below to claim your slice of the future of podcasting. In your time researching your own experiences and speaking to others, I wonder, have you ever come across cases where people have been abducted but ultimately not returned? I haven't. But I, I understand some such cases do exist. Do you know that there's a policeman in um, Lancashire? I can't remember what his name. The, 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 the Todd Borden incident. What's his, the, the guy's name? He's a police officer. About 20 years ago. You, you may not know it, but uh, Gary Hesseltine knows this guy. Yeah. But, yeah. Okay. but uh, he investigated a case as a police officer where somebody was killed and dumped on top of a large rubbish dump and it was all mm-hmm. it's all very in, involved he, he um, uh, the police concluded it was some sort of occult ceremony or something but it may it, it have been strongly uh, linked to the abduction film but I, I I don't know of any personally but I, I, I believe there there are cases in the literature that that um, rare cases but they happen anyway they happen nonetheless yes i've just been watching recently the david palides missing 411 the ufo connection and obviously that that whole series looks at missing persons but particularly with a focus on the ufo subject obviously for the last one and some very interesting cases within that um i'd love to ask and this was one actually i wrote just before you came on steve the title of the book out of time is that written to be taken multiple different ways? Because I read it from from the first time I saw the title Out of Time that these beings come from out with our timeline or out with time itself. But then when you read the book, not to spoil things, you know, it can be taken as we have run out of time. And I just wonder, is that was that deliberate? Yes, it's deliberate. <laughs> it's a title with more than one meaning, one with more than one nuanced meaning. Um the only other title I seriously considered for the book when I was writing the manuscript was The Unbelieved, which would focus on the attitude to abductees who have these experiences. Yeah. Um, the out of time one out in the end. Yeah. I like it. And like I say, I just purely from my own point of view, I'd always read it one way. And just before you came on, I thought... Actually, thinking back, is that, yeah, so I like it. Um, what I want to do is there are lots of aspects that I've not touched on yet because i got some fantastic listener questions in. Some of them might be related to 
ideas in the book. Some of them are just more putting them out there for your consideration. But I'll get through some of these before we finish up. Um, So a couple of questions from regular contributor Dave Smethurst. Thanks again, Dave, for sending in the list that you did. I'll ask uh, a few of these. Are there any common factors in abductions that suggest people are taken to any underground facilities or bases, supporting the idea potentially that ultra-terrestrials would be responsible? Hi, Dave. Um, I know of some abductees, including one uh, who doesn't live far from you. I I wouldn't identify him. Um, Who's um, a senior police officer who claims that that this has happened to him. And he is really quite compelling evidence that it probably did. And he's quite a good artist. He's drawn some of these scenarios that he's he's, uh, been involved in. Uh, none of this is is, is in the, in my book, by the way. But I I have this this stuff on file. Um, I think it's comparatively unusual for abductees to be taken to our uh, underground facilities or you know some something. Um, I don't know whether if these things actually happen it, it, um, if there are non-flying saucer uh, environments that, that abductees are taken to, which, which you know, may, many, well, a minority of abductees say they are. I don't know whether that's, um, whether these are created by the abducting entities, which, who, which are extraterrestrial, they would just have bases under the ocean or whatever, or whether there are other, other beings involved. I really just don't know about that. It's, it's comparatively unusual. When, when you, I've interviewed 40 or 50 abductees without giving them names or pseudonyms in the book. I just weave their narratives into the, into the text. Um, I, and none, only this one abductee that, uh, that I, I mentioned uh, has ever dis- discussed such a such a scenario with me but he claims that not only was he taken to a, a mine like a mine shaft uh, mm-hmm. but he met two other abductees there that he's read about and identified through the literature because they wrote they, these two abductees wrote a book called Confes- um, Connections uh, co-authors and uh, he, he reckoned he met them uh, years before they wrote the book and he, I, he identified them very precisely as to who they are and what they look like so yes these things do do seem to happen to some people yes I, w- I wonder in your own research if you've come across and you may know if you your own experience that might be more difficult is there a feeling that you do leave the planet when you're taken? Because we hear different abductees talk about being taken into deep outer space. Some of them say they literally remained in a craft above the field they were taken in. Others, they don't know. And I just wonder, is there a, is there a pattern to that or any incline you've had, Steve? Good question. Um, I don't know because I've never been able to look out of a window and they never tell me, they never tell me where we are, you know, in relation to the rest of the universe. We're just in this enclosed space and they're focusing on my physiology or my brain. That's it. And then we're taken back. Um, so 
Uh, I honestly don't know about that. I mean, I know some abductees claim to be have been taken around the moon and uh, uh, mm. claim to, to, to you know fly above uh, uh, you know very very high in the atmosphere. Um, I myself have no recollection of those kind of details, but some abductees have very clear recollection of them. I know there's a party that a party of researchers and investigators who, while out with Chris Bledsoe, report that they were taken to basically a station on the moon and, and yeah. come back, but they, they don't really talk about it. So, yeah, very interesting. Um, Dave also asks, have you noticed any direct connections to cattle mutilations and the human abduction program? There's, um, there's an incident in, in uh, Out of Time uh, in Chapter 1, where, which... I describe when I was 14 in rural south, southern southwest Ireland, I was taken to see a cattle mutilation um, on a farm I was staying at. And uh, I, as, as with the um, abduction in 1972, I could make no sense of this. It, that what this, this cow, I was taken there at nine o'clock in the morning just after breakfast and a fully adult cow, which was uh, valued by the farm as a very good milker because, you know, this, this, they were rural Irish farmers. They weren't particularly well off. Um, was lying on its back with its legs sticking up in the air like this at a kind of, excuse me, at a kind of angle. Uh, rigid, all four of its legs were rigid. And one of part of its jawbone had been removed, and one of his ears had been cut off, and one of his eyes had been gouged out. So it was, it was a big red hole that was like cauterized. Um, and uh, its back end, its whole anorectal area, and its uh, birth canal were kind of cut out as a, like a cylinder uh, with very, very, very thorough surgery. There was no blood on the ground anywhere. And the vets had been called. And the vet proclaimed this cow had died of anthrax. I, I would imagine that the vet had to give some kind of diagnosis. He had absolutely no idea what he was looking at. And he, so he told the farmer, it's anthrax, this cow, cow's died of anthrax. Now, you may know that anthrax is uh, not a contagious disease, but it's, it's the spores are extremely fastidious. And... Yeah. Um, if anthrax is suspected or diagnosed in any animal, human, the, the region, let alone the, the, the locality, is usually evacuated. Uh, it's extremely rare and it's extremely serious. Um, so uh, that wasn't done. And I think the vet probably just told the farmer this because he assumed the farmer would have no no acquaintance with anthrax, didn't really know what its symptoms were, but knew it was extremely yeah. rare. And he had to give some explanation as to what, how this cow had died because that was, that was his professional job to explain how this cow had died. Um, so what was, was the question about uh, a cattle mutilations and abductions? Yeah, do you see any direct communications between those? Well, in my case, um, I was the abductee, or one of the abductees in the family, and I, um, 
I was taken to this to see this cattle mutilation, and it was only in the nineteen nineties that I recognised uh, when I, re- I watched Linda Howe's documentary um, Strange Harvest. I looked at these cows in Colorado and in Utah and and in uh, Montana and so forth, and said those animals are exactly what I saw in Ireland in 1970. They were exactly, mutilated exactly the same as that. And that's when I began to wonder whether um, I was the, maybe, you know, I'd seen a very rare, not maybe the first uh, mutilation uh, in Ireland or in in the British Isles at that time. I'm not sure how it fits in with what the abductors are doing. If it, if it is them, that those uh, those entities are responsible for the cattle mutilations. Somebody is responsible for them, and it's it's associated with uh, unidentified flying objects and with uh, activity of UFOs, uh, and it's not been explained away effectively as anything else. I mean, as, as you probably know, a lot of these cows are found... Uh, drop from high up and they land in trees with their legs sticking up in the air and these kind of things. So obviously, you know, it's not the idea of predators or coyotes or or something like that is, is ridiculous. I mean, also Ireland doesn't have any, doesn't have any natural predators that could kill and eat cattle. So um, how it links with the abduction subjects, I actually don't know how it works. But it's one. Yes. I was going to say just one more from Dave because he's he's got a few different topics here to discuss. Um, And Dave did send about 15 questions. So I'm just going with the three from him. Um, Good day. Do you, Steve, put any credence in the human hybrid breeding program? We hear these uh, stories often about human women being taken to meet their hybrid children. Dave personally feels it's very out there uh, and maybe a bit much, but. Have you come across this? Yes, it is very out there. Yes, I have come across it. Yes, I have met female abductees that have been through this process. It's a thing. It actually is a real thing. And it's furthermore, it's, it's a core part of the programme. Um, I don't go into this that much in the book because I'll I, I step back a couple of, of, uh, of pages. My book... It's an attempt to uh, introduce the alien abduction phenomenon as a real thing with hard scientific medical evidence, uh, particularly with the the bodily scarring and implants and so forth, to uh, a sceptical or not particularly interested audience that's just a little bit curious about it. Maybe they've they've come across it on uh, TV documentaries or on the internet and there's they some acquaintance with it, but they, they think it's all strange and something that's, you know, might be real, might not be, but it's all a bit strange. Mm. But I don't go into the hybrid breeding program in my book because I think that would be a bit of a stretch for the intended audience of the book. But um, I do have an entire chapter on it, but at a very introductory level. And I, I, I write what abductees report, uh, multiple abductees from multiple places and multiple times. And there's a consistency of the, the reports that are very compelling and uh, 
that that does seem to be a very central feature of the abduction program that they plan to have a permanent presence here and the way their presence will be manifest will be uh, from beings that look and sound exactly like us. They're 99.9% human, but there's a little bit in there that is from the aliens. And I don't really uh, make a big thing out of this, but I do introduce it as a definite theme in the later chapters. That's one of the, the, uh, the motivations of the programme. A couple of questions from Ryan Terry. So thanks, Ryan. Um, have you found any commonality between abductees' traits that could shed light on what the overall plan is, be it, you know, a blood type or a disorder of some kind, genetically maybe? Yeah. Um, personally, no. There's been a lot of speculation about this. Uh, the reason I haven't found it is probably because I haven't looked for it and I haven't um, examined you know, a lot of uh, claims and ideas about this. I, I don't find much. Uh, one of the, the things um, that was mentioned a few years ago was, oh, all abductees seem to have a rhesus-negative blood type. Is that, is that you've come mm. across that? That's that's come up, yeah, because my mum my has that blood type, yeah. Yeah, I'm rhesus-positive, and uh, I've been a, a, a lifetime abductee, so it's not a universal thing. And if it does happen, and I'm not sure why that would necessarily mark you out as different, but it doesn't, it doesn't really seem to have a lot of substance in it. I I mean, there, there, there may be other things, you know. Yeah, there may be something that no one's even thought of yet, or completely Uh, nothing to us that could to them. What I do do is in chapter three, uh, which is titled The Program, I have a list of 35 different things that abductees report happens to them uh, or, or report about their lives, some of which are physiological and some of which are psychological and some of which are just weird things that, weird, weird things that happen around me, like like uh, bright lights flying around the home and, um, you know, able to occasionally understand what other people are thinking, uh, which... which um, which is associated with uh, recent abduction activity and so forth. But um, whether abductees have very definitely detectable medical markers of that kind, I'm I'm not sure I would necessarily go that far. I really don't know. No, thanks. Uh, Ryan also asks, can abductees sense implants in each other? So either yourself, have you ever come across someone and you've thought you can tell or, or vice versa, maybe? I can't. Um, do you know Debbie Jordan Cowbell? You know who she is? Mm-hmm, yep. Yeah. Um, have you ever interviewed her, by the way? No? No. Um, she claims she can sense uh, things in other abductees. She says she can see it in their eyes. And the abductee population is about one in 25 of the human race. Um, but I, as far as um, as far as I'm concerned, no. Hi, everyone. If you listen to the podcast on an Apple device, you can support directly by going on to Apple Podcasts and clicking the subscribe button. And for less than the price of a coffee per month, you can get 
early access to episodes, episodes in full, and no adverts or sponsorships like this one you're hearing now. It also supports directly to me at the podcast, so thank you very much. Also, don't forget to go and leave the podcast on Apple a five-star review and make sure you click the follow button too. Thanks. Let me ask on that, Stephen. I've I've left this off till now. I was going to ask in the body of the interview if it was relevant, but I want to ask now. Coming from a, I'll put my devil's advocate hat on, my sceptical hat on for a moment. And this would come up in general conversation. I'm sure if you had this conversation with a member of the general public with no interest in the UFO subject, if you claim to have an implant of any kind, what's stopping you now going to... A, a, a doctor surgery privately or otherwise and saying that I want this taken out, removed and studied? Yeah. Well, this is a very complicated question. Um, implants are... Uh, uh, do you know uh, Terry Lovelace? Yes, and I've been messaging him for a while. He should be on the podcast pretty soon. You'll, you'll, you'll enjoy interviewing him. He's, 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 he's a great guy, but... Um, uh, Terry had an implant in his knee, I think, in, in, in one of his one of his knees. Really big, complicated implants. That's relatively uncommon because uh, it's fairly easy to access surgically. Um, mm. Most abductees who have implants or who know they have implants, they're at the um, um, in the cribriform place. Uh, where the olfactory nerve goes into the brain, which we already already mentioned, or sometimes in the ears. Now, nobody really knows how they put them in the ears. Some some abductees say they've got a very extremely thin needle that goes into the ear somehow. That would you'd think that would be um, would involve puncturing the eardrum, mm. but a lot of abductees just say they have a ringing sound in the ear. Um, for several seconds duration each day. Robert Hastings tells us uh, he's got an, an ear implant which rings for 10 seconds uh, and then stops each day or you know every, every few days. And he's very specific about this because he's timed it. Um, some abductees, uh, you know Betty Andreasen was? Or Ted yes. Rice? Uh, you know Ted Rice who was the subject of one of Carla Turner's books? Ted was the name, yeah. yeah, he was the subject of a, of a book Carla Turner wrote called Masquerade of Angels. Um, both Ted and Betty Andreessen, who, who uh, Betty has passed on last year, claim that during abdu- uh, an abduction, one of their eyeballs was removed and an, abduct- and an implant was placed inside the brain and then the, the eye was put back which sounds immensely improbable, you know, from a medical point of view, but that's what they say, and that's what a lot of abductees claim has happened to them. So the, the point about it is just a lot of implants in the head, which is the primary source of implants, are extremely difficult to detect and extremely difficult or impossible to remove. And they're, they're a tiny... Um, like a grain of sand or a, or a, a, a cantaloupe seed, and they are. Uh, I've I've got a um, a sixty-page analysis of an implant uh, in my book uh, from a material scientist called Steve Colburn, who published the report in two thousand nine, and they're extremely sophisticated um, devices. That they're they're, they're um, biologically they're 
made up of uh, protein, coagulum, hemocytorin, and keratin. Keratin, as you know, is the primary substance in hair and nails. So, mm -hmm. And hemocytorin is to do with tissue, uh, tissue aspiration, and um, protein coagulum uh, works with the body's thrombocytes. So it, they're biological material, probably harvested from the same abductee that they're, they're placed, that the, the implant is, is then placed in. And so they're completely compatible with the body, and the body has no inflammatory response to them at all, which means that um, abductees have no reaction to them. If, if they're placed inside the body, they, it, they, the body recognizes it as part of their own biological material. And the, the core of these uh, devices um, is, involves carbon nanotubes, tiny little carbon nanotubes, just a few molecules in thickness. And they, they emit uh, uh, radio waves in three different frequency bands. Um, a lot is known about them. But in removing one, uh, accessing and identifying and removing one is an extremely sophisticated process. There was um, there was uh, a pod podiatrist, a podiatric surgeon in Southern California called Dr. Roger Lear, which many of your audience will know who he was. He died in uh, 2014, and he removed 19 implants. But Roger removed them mainly from the legs and feet because he was a, po a podiatrist. A pod podiatrist, a podiatric surgeon, mm -hmm. whereas the more complex and interesting ones are usually placed in the brain. The idea that you can go to a GP in the UK, as an example, particularly, you know, with, with the, the NHS as it is uh, in, the, in its current state of crisis, and say that you think you've got an alien implant in your nose, yeah. and could, you, could they please uh, remove it? I think you are likely to get a certain amount of incredulity to be greeted by a certain amount of incredulity most of the time. It's not something I'm personally prepared to do because um, it's so in, immensely improbable. The whole phenomenon is so immensely improbable. And the medical fraternity, by and large, has little or no acquaintance with it. So you've got to start from square one if you're talking about this with anybody in the medical world. Um, if you get a sympathetic medical doctor who really has studied it and looked into it, uh, if anybody knows of one or any in the UK, could you please get in touch with me and let me know? And I'd like to link up with them. But uh, I, I don't know anyone. Yeah, if any listeners do, and they're very good at that, please get in touch and I can pass those details on to Steve if please, you don't want to do that please. directly. Please. Um, Ryan also asks, is there going to be an audiobook version of the book available? Uh, a member of my family has asked me that because he likes audiobooks. I think probably not. Is uh, Ryan visually impaired or, or has problems with reading? Because some people do. I, I, I don't. I don't believe so, but I just know it's a more and more popular. It comes up yeah. quite often when uh, guests come on and they mention the books, and I don't mention an audiobook. It comes up quite frequently. Still considering it, but it's a big project to have uh, either me or, yeah. or a professional reader read it out. It's going to be expensive uh, to produce, and I'm not really sure uh, what the size of the audience would be, what the, you know, the size of the market should be. So uh, it's not something I've done so far or have any imminent plans to do. But if the, if the book gathers um, popularity, I probably will eventually do it, yeah. 
Well, like I would say, folks, if you're going to pick up a copy, which I know many of you will, and, and you're very good at picking up the guest books, uh, make sure you leave reviews on the websites as well so Please, people can yeah. see it as being read, picked up. And it's, it's very well reviewed already on Amazon. Um, but audiobooks are, are gathering more and more popularity with the, the generations as they are. So, yeah, I'm a little bit old school. I like the physical copy. Um, but, yeah, um, I would offer to do it for you, Steve, but there's not much market for a strong Scottish accent in audiobook <laughs> form. Um There'd be a lot more complaints and refunds being requested at a lack of understanding what was being said. Um, last couple of questions, Steve, because you've been really generous with your time. And you've touched on this one slightly, but this is from a, a very good listener, Gnosis. Uh, he asks, are you aware of any family abduction cases that go back even anecdotally through three or more generations prior to the 1940s? <clears throat> well, um Short answer is no, but my grandmother was abducted all throughout her life. She, she was born in 1908, mm. and she died in 1968 at age 60 of a heart in a heart problem. Um, she was definitely involved in this from from infancy, uh, but she cloaked it in the folk tales fairy, occult sort of um, explanations that, that, were, that were prevalent at the time. You know, she grew up in uh, West Yorkshire as a, a farmer's daughter and she, she married a carpenter and she lived in, in uh, a, a small village near Bradford in West Yorkshire and she had no education after age 14 or 15 when she left school and she never went to college and she just didn't know anything about astronomy or cosmology or anything like that. So she, she had a very limited uh, perception of what might be the causative agency of this thing. And was that something that potentially went back further again with her parents? <coughs> was that ever a topic that came up? Do you know? Well, something we haven't mentioned during this interview, but which I do mention in a very, just the first few pages of the book, when I first worked out that these abducting entities can communicate with you and you can communicate with them and telepathically, somehow you're, you're tell, you can talk to them telepathically just as, as much as they can talk to you. When I worked out that we, I could actually ask them questions, I asked one of them when I was uh, 10 or 11 years old, probably 10 years old, because I, I remember the house we lived in at the time, and I remember the, the well, where I was abducted from. I asked one of them, why are you doing this to me? You know, I was very respectful. And being a kid, you know, you, you, in the 1960s, you, you kind of were fairly respectful of authority, and I, they, they seemed to be in charge of you. So I didn't rebel and kick and scream against them so much. I just... Sort of, accepted in some way what, what they were doing. I said, why why am I being chosen for this? Why is this happening to me? And he said, it's because of your mother and your grandmother and your great-grandmother and you're the next one in line. And he just carried on with what he was doing. And I I never forgot that the, 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 him saying to me. I, I, I imagine he said it because he assumed that that would be buried and forgotten. But it came back to me as an adult that I, I remembered him saying that. And I remember the circumstance in which that, that, was, uh, that, was, that was told. Now, my, grand, my great-grandmother was born in 1873. 
And so I think she was probably one of the origin abductees. And if so, in 1890, she would have been 17, which is the, um, the start of the reproductive years for a woman. I mean, particularly 100 years ago, you know, when people reach sexual maturity a bit later than they do now for all, mm-hmm. all kinds of reasons. Um, so that's the start of, a, of, a, of the reproductive life of, a, of an adult. And there's something in the book that I write about in the final chapter about a Turkish abductee called um, Farid Erzu, who I've known for about 20 years. And she... Um, <clears throat> she now lives in Istanbul and she wrote it in her, in one of her autobiographical books, she wrote a story about her great grandfather, a guy called Emin Refik, who was a lectured at Istanbul university uh, in the 1890s. She just says that the 1890s uh, who described being uh, visited at night and paralyzed by two huge reptilian Entities who talked to him, in, talked to the, the abductee in his mind, and explained to him that he was being chosen for something, and it, it, it would be um, from you to they, they said from you to three generations, and they left in the morning. Now, this I quote chunk, a little chunk of this book, this uh, text uh, in in my book. And Farah's uh, given me permission to do that because it's absolutely pertinent to the, the 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 thesis that this thing starts in the 1890s and all the origin abductees were chosen in that decade, and they were chosen as young adults. The, all the origin abductees were young adults, and from their progeny, the program started. So that's about as far back as it goes. And my great grandfather, uh, my great grandmother, who the I was told uh, in 1966, I was told that uh, it was to do with her and her daughter and her daughter and me uh, in line. <coughs> um, she was um, she was uh, exactly fits the the time scale of this thesis, yeah. And I would ask, have you ever heard the idea that if these objects experience or these entities experience time in a different way to how we do, that for your family, from your great-grandmother, that's been 150 years potentially of experiences, that for them it's not 150 years and that could all happen within the space of a few days because they can literally come in and out the timeline and your experiences to them happen over minutes or hours? Don't know if that's true. I, I'm not sure I can buy into that, but it, it might be the case. You know, I, I, there's more things we don't know than things we do know. Um, it's, I think, both the alien, the, the abductors themselves, and the grey aliens who are their slaves, basically, they're, they're genetically created servants to carry out the program, or largely carry out the program. Um, I think they have extremely long lifespans, probably more than a human lifespan. Uh, Grey aliens probably have a lifespan at least as long as a, a long-lived human, maybe maybe a century. Mm. 
and the the origin, the the uh, the abductors themselves, the the true aliens. We don't know how long they live, but it could be centuries. And it, they 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 might live through time. They might experience time exactly as we experience it. It's just that they live such a long time. We don't and know. Final question, Steve, yeah. uh, from David over on YouTube. He asks, thanks to Dr. Gary Nolan coming out recently, we know that there are people, especially military personnel, who are suffering brain damage or physical alterations after coming into contact with UFOs. Mm. Is this something that you have come across either personally or, or through speaking to other abductees? Brain damage, and uh, not, not to that degree, no. I mean, people's uh, abductees are psychologically scarred and they're physically scarred in fairly minor ways. But, you know, some of the uh, scarring is quite noticeable and quite disfiguring. Um, but from what you're, dis- you're, from what you're uh, Gary Nolan is discussing, I have no personal acquaintance with that, no. Yeah. When if you interview Terry Lovelace, you'll you'll find out a lot more about this. Yeah, I think when with Gary's work, especially from what we know at the moment, it seems to be when people come into contact with the outside of these craft yes. in close proximity, yes. as opposed to this doesn't seem to happen when yeah. people are taken on board the crafts directly. Yeah. So it's something to do with the propulsion system, or the you know what what uh, technologies in, is deployed yeah. to. Make them move around. Um, there's a number of cases, uh, classic cases in the UFO literature. Um, there's a guy in uh, <clears throat> in uh, one of the Midwestern states in the United States decades ago who had uh, marks like a grid all over his chest, and he was really badly burned uh, by coming into contact with the unidentified flying arm. Do you know that case? I don't remember the guy's name now. Oh, I've not heard of that one, no. It's either in Michigan, Michigan, or one of the, one of those places. You know, uh, he was out hunting, and uh, he encountered a flying saucer. And uh, when it took off, it, it burnt him, uh, it, it, and it really badly. Um, Terry Lovelace and his buddy, who had the uh, 1977 abduction in in a Devil's Den uh, National Park in Arkansas, they both had. Uh, blistering and burns all over their bodies from head to foot mm. after that experience. Yeah, so that yeah. that is a hit thing. It really happens. Yeah. Well, listen, Steve. I want to ask you one more question as we wrap up. Uh, when the listeners buy a copy of Out of Time, what do you hope they take away from it at the end? What do I hope that they'll take away from it? Yeah. Um, you'll get a thesis about. Uh, the abduction phenomenon all essential parts of it which are fairly concrete and incontroversible the medical evidence is extremely thorough Um, something we didn't uh, go into in in, in the interview was in uh, 2015 an abduction happened in my house and the following day my wife found uh, a hair this long, uh, uh, what we, we thought was a blonde grey or grey hair under the dining table 
which didn't belong to either of us because my wife's a redhead Irish woman and I, you know, you can see how long my hair is. And a hair, an identical hair was found outside the patio doors on the patio in the garden. And these two hairs were subsequently analysed by a, um, a microbiology, a micro um, analysis lab laboratory in Illinois called LLC, Microtraced. LLC Microtrace or Microtrace LLC. And the analysis of that was uh, done alongside a hair, completely different hair, found by an abductee in California. And the results of these uh, forensic analyses of these hairs are also in out of time in a long appendix as to exactly what they're, they're made of. They're, they're, and they're pretty astounding, actually. <laughs> Something, something quite unexpected. So I won't go into that in, in, in what remains of the interview, but um, you, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> you'll find fairly strong scientific medical concrete uh, evidence of things like that in Out of Time, which are not always present in books on the abduction subject. And um, a lot of, uh, and you'll find my, a uh, summary of pulling all these things together, what I think is really going on, which we've touched on in this interview, but uh, it requires quite a lot more than an hour or two to go into. Well, Steve, I enjoyed reading the book and the, the work you've put in is evident alone in the bibliography and the appendix at the end as well, because it really does back up exactly what you've talked about in the body of the text as well. So it's been wonderful speaking with you, Steve. I'll put the links to your work in the description of the podcast. So I would encourage folks to go and pick up a copy of Out of Time, the Intergenerational Abduction Programme Explored. And Steve, again, wonderful speaking to you. And I would just ask, have you got plans to write any further books in the future on the topic? George Knapp's urging me to do that. Um, you, know, uh, you know that George Knapp who works out of uh, uh, Las I Vegas. Do, yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know. I'm not. I'm, I've no plans to do that this year. I'm booked to speak at uh, an, an, a conference on the abduction subject uh, being held at Hull University in September, and I may have a couple of, inv- of other speaking invitations. So once we've got those out of the way and the dust has settled. Maybe I'll think about another book, but not it's not on the table yet. Well, maybe I'll get to meet you in person at one of those conferences as well. I might venture to one of them this year. Yeah, I hope so, Andy. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much.